Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, New Books Network audience. I am your host, Erica Monahan, and today we are having a conversation about a terrific new book called Picturing Russian Empire. Picturing Russian Empire is a multi-essay volume edited by three fantastic authors, editors, and we have two of those authors with us here today. The editor that cannot be with us is Sergei Kozlov. Sergei Kozlov is a senior researcher at Tumen State University in Siberia, Russia. He is a trained medievalist. And, but I have the pleasure of being here with his two co-editors today, and they are Joe Neuberger is Professor Emerita at the University of Texas at Austin. She is the author of several books and many more articles. Her most recent monograph was This Thing of Darkness, Eisenstein's Ivan the Terrible in Stalin's Russia, an award-winning book published by Cornell in 2019. And her first book was Hooliganism, Crime and Culture in St. Petersburg, 1900 to 1914, published in 1993. Her co-editor is Valerie Kibbleson. Valerie Kibbleson is Thomas N. Tentler Collegiate Professor of History and the Arthur F. Turnow Professor of History at the University of Michigan. She is the author of Cartographies of Tsardom, Desperate Magic, and Autocracy in the Provinces, as well as many other books and articles and edited, edited volumes in between those works. I encourage you to check out uh, both of these editors' profiles. But today, we are here to talk about their new publication, Picturing Russian Empire, published by Oxford University Press in 2023. Um, a heavy topic at an even heavier time to talk about the history of the Russian Empire. And so I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. In New Books Network tradition, I want to start by asking both of our editors, how did you get interested in history? Tell us about your path into history, please. And maybe we'll start with Joan and then go to Val. Um, hello, Erica, and thank you for doing this interview. We're really delighted to talk about our new book. Um, how did I get interested in history? Uh, I studied literature as an undergraduate, Russian literature and Russian language, and I was lucky enough to get to go to Leningrad, St. Petersburg, as it's called today, um, when I was an undergraduate. Uh, but I found that when I was there, uh, most of the things I was interested in were historical. I had all my questions were historical questions rather than literary questions and um, really wanted to understand how this society of the late Soviet Union had come to be and um, rather than sort of the ways it was represented in literature. So I, it was a hard choice for me actually to choose between literature and history, which maybe helps explain why I leaned back to representations in film and culture in my career as it developed. Thank you. Oh, super. And Val, how about you? Well, my my path comes directly from my grandmother, uh, my babushka, who lived through the Russian Revolution and told colorful stories that were very loosely connected to reality. Uh, <laughs> And uh, in which she was really the main protagonist of the Russian Revolution, it turned out. So 
that was both fascinating and a clue that history was about stories and storytelling. And that propelled me down this road. Oh, gosh, that that is fantastic. And um, and I just want to say, Joan, I too, my first trip was to the Soviet Union. And I have just been animated by this question of how did this get to be like this? Um, that's just stayed with me and taken me farther and farther and back in time. So um, thank you for that to any and to budding budding future historians out there in the audience who might who find themselves just niggled by the same questions. All right, now to picturing Russian Empire. Um, for those of us in our audience that don't know, this um, it, you team you teamed up in 2008 to produce a book picturing Russia, which I and so many historian colleagues use to great effect in our classes. Um, and here, it seems like you decided to team up and do it again. Um, so please tell us, uh, tell us about that, and and why did you write this book or author edit this book? Uh, okay, so this is Joan. Um, the main impetus for writing this book is that Val and I enjoyed picturing Russia so much, we really wanted to work together again. And we threw around a lot of different topics, um, but it, we kept coming back to picturing Russia, and um, uh, we decided that we would do something on, on empire. Um, and then... Uh, we happened to be in Tumen in, I can't remember Val, but it, it was sometime like 2015, 16, 17, something like that. And our friends in Moscow, our historian friends in Moscow, uh, linked us to Sergei, uh, who was then a professor at, as he is still now in, in the university there. And he took us all over Tumen for one thing. And we all went to Tabos together, which was, um, long dream of vows, which meant it became a long dream of mine. And um, uh, and then Sergei organized a conference for our contributors in the summer of 2019. Uh, so that was a huge um, uh, further impetus to really getting this book done. And I, I want to add that having a conference in Tumen rather than in Moscow for um, an international group of contributors Made it, I think made a huge impact on the on the book and on the community of writers who contributed to this book. It's hard to really pinpoint what that means, um, but it definitely shaped the way that we talked to each other and came together as a community to be outside of the metropole and to be in the, I was going to say the heart of the empire, but there were many, many different hearts of the empire. Um, so yeah, so I would say that's that's how we got that's the beginning process. Uh, then we invited many, many more, or we invited other um, contributors to fill in some blanks in the in the table of contents. And then, of course, um, uh, when when Oxford uh, agreed to publish the book, the editors had their own ideas about ways in which we would structure the book, um, and they had us write which we didn't do for the first book. They had us write introductions to each chronological chapter, um, and they generously allowed us to create our own maps. Uh, and yeah, I'll stop there. I don't know, Val, if you want to add to that. Dad, would you like to add anything? Yeah, just um, I, I just wanted to call out Sergey again that uh, Joan and I really wanted to do 
another project together. And when we met Sergey, we realized, well, this is going to be a great team. And we really worked out the, the shaping of it as a, as a threesome. Super. And if, if I could also chime in here, I am, I am a contributor to the volume. I expected it to be terrific. And the finished product, when it got into my hands, even blew me away farther. I mean, it's just beautiful. It's so well done. I really encourage our listeners to get your hands on it and, and flip through it in its entirety. I mean, it's just so rich and colorful and beautiful. And if I may also make one more comment about um, to kind of building on what both of you said about history being stories and, and the maybe feel of having been in that conference, having we participated in that conference and we went on an excursion in um, to the new museum to the Romanov dynasty and their exile and ultimate execution. And this, this museum in Tobolsk was newly opened. And I remember walking through it because I did much of my research in Tobolsk and that museum wasn't there then just realizing how this sort of a museum, nostalgic, sentimental towards the royal family, didn't exist in the Soviet Union. And that now we were in this space that was completely kind of celebratory of the dynasty. And and it seemed to hearken that um, change. <laughs> the, um, anyway, so um, to the book. I'm going to start with um, a, a question or a couple of questions bundled that it, it is are probably immediately on the minds of our listeners, given the title of the book. Uh, did Putin's escalation of the war with the full-scale invasion in February two, 2022 alter your vision of the volume? And if so, how? And here, the, the more specific question that I'll tack into this is um, to, that go, speaks to some of the essays. It, the volume ends with a photo essay by Joan, where you called "Experiencing Wartime," and, and it, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm presuming that this experience of writing about something that is in the moment going on, unfinished, was unlike anything you've done before. Um, you're a historian; we're still in the middle of this, and so I'm interested in hearing a little bit more from you specifically, Joan, about that experience of writing and how you approached it. But maybe Val. You could start with that. How did how did the full scaling gate in invasion change uh, your view of the volume, if if at all? Yeah, of course it it changed it profoundly. Uh, so, I think in in our academic world, um, empires star has been rising for for a couple of decades. That after being a, a terrible thing and a slur that you could throw at a at a aggrandizing power. Uh, it became a, a new way of of pushing back intellectually against the frame of the nation state. Uh, and so a lot of scholars have been thinking about empire as a more um, kind of capacious uh, political formation that could contain a lot of difference. So empires of difference have become a, a, a kind of catchphrase. And I think that framing really uh, shaped some of the vision of the, the initial vision of the book that, uh, sure, empire was an oppressive state form, formation, but it allowed for so much variety and the visual 
allowed for almost a celebration of that, that uh, visual production took on so many different forms and so many of them were beautiful. And uh, there was a, a more uh, delightful tone <laughs> to the volume before the invasion, which reminded us, oh, right, empire really is an aggrandizing and violent formation. Uh, and that profoundly changed both the way we approach the introductions and the ways our authors approach their work. So um, it, we were uh, fortunate in the timing in this uh, unfortunate way that our authors did have time to go back and at least tweak that her essays as appropriate. And a number of them show that, uh, that change in just fundamental conception. And of course, Joan's essay does that most of all. But before turning over to Joan, I also want to say we have uh, many Russian contributors. And this, of course, has, has cast a bit of a pall and a complication. And we, we, um, we really value having those, those contributors who stuck with it. Thank you. Joan, um, maybe speak about your experience writing the final essay. Well, you're right, Erica. It's very different from what I normally write. Um, and it was actually very difficult to write. So let me start by saying that uh, uh, Ox, well, that empire is not really my field. Um, and so I, I, was, I was just contributing to the introduction and the introductions. I didn't have an essay in the book. Um, and then Oxford wanted us to write something about the war, and they wanted us to write a photo essay. So I volunteered to do that in part because um, I, uh, I'd i been collecting visual images of the war from the very beginning, and I was very interested in the sort of artistic response and the response of art historians in Ukraine to uh, the full-scale invasion. So I had a lot of material, um, and I knew that I'd been shaped, that my view of what was going on there was shaped very profoundly by the images that I was looking at. Um, but I found it incredibly difficult to write, and it took me a long time even just to get started. I'd, at, the, at the very beginning, sometime in early March, I'd written an article about Ukrainian poetry because I was finding that poetry was the only language I could understand at that time, that the historian's analytical language was not helping me understand what was going on there. Um, so anyway, eventually I sat down and um, took all this material and, and put it together. And it ended up being a really nice coda to the book in the sense that one of the main questions that we ask throughout the book is, um, how do images work? Do images have agency? What kind of agency do images have? How are they constructed in a, in a moment? And how are, how do they reflect how do they reflect their small moment, their small historical place and time and individual or collective um, producers? But also how are they aware of how do they reflect and how do they show awareness of a larger um, multinational, international, multimedia context? Um, so I, so those are the questions that I tried to answer in the essay. Um, I think I have to say that I was so 
impressed by the, especially by Ukrainian art historians and artists who are asking much more profound questions. Um, many of them in Ukraine at the time, many of them in exile at the time. Um, but uh, they, these questions also, like, to what extent do images, um, to what extent are images themselves violent? How do, what kind of violence do they contain or how do they contain what violence is being acted, enacted at the time? Um, and uh, these, these questions really helped me um, hone in on the, on the essay that I wanted to write. Thank you. And yeah, and those questions are not limited to this particular sphere of Russian empire as well. So yeah, which is one of the things of value I think I assigned in this inquiry that, that you, you all have constructed and present to us all here. Um, I kind of want to stay with this, um, the problems of history and the present. And one of those problematic components is um, the history of medieval worse and its foundings. Um, one of the re Putin's claims to uh, the Russian nation having its history in what is Ukrainian territory. Um, and so you write in you write in your introduction and quoting selective, exaggerated, or patently false reimaginings of that medieval past have been central to Russia's justification of its claims on its neighbor to the southwest. End quote. So you're very, very well aware of that. And and yet there are people who would say the rest of the world has been complicit in Russia's claim, Russia's claims to empire, and one of the ways one of the ways it has done that is by beginning going along with beginning Russian history in Kiev and Rus. So um, you both know the, um, the the problems with it and know know the history well. And so I want to ask you, for people who might object to this formulation of even putting these periods in this volume together, what how do you respond? Maybe Val, since you're the our medievalist, maybe I'll go to you. Yeah. Of course, this is a this is a, a painful question, and has been for medievalists uh, for a while. But but now it's it's impossible to ignore. Of course, um, so one of the beauties, I think, of the long time frame that we we cover in this book uh, is that we cover we we start in the in the ninth century. So long before there's anything called Russia, uh, and certainly long before there is an empire, uh, a Russian empire, but there are other empires, and the Rus occupy a place amid and amongst those empires. So Rus history, the medieval uh, period, is born among empires. And our early essays really bring that out. Then that history is, is up for grabs. And the volume traces the, the complex uses of the history and relations of different parts of Rus in historical imagination. I just call attention to Maria Grazia Bartolini's essay in the book, which talks about the way Ukrainian churchmen in the 16th and mostly 17th centuries 
uh, played on the medieval relationship between Southern Rus and Northern Rus in order to carve out a particular, in some ways, protected place in the, the now Russian Empire. So this has been a question that's been at play from the very beginning. And the, the volume, I think, does a good job of keeping those questions alive and exploring them along the way. Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, and I would say, and someone, um, I uh, began my graduate training in the post-Soviet, the first post-Soviet decade. And this is, from day one, has always been a very, very important issue. And But there's a certain modernist myopia that I think has kind of uh, prevails a little bit in um, in many academic places in the world. And so for those more modernist focusing places, I think it has hit harder, these questions. Um, but so thank you so much for that. Go ahead. Could yeah. I just uh, jump in on that? Um, I think the modernism in some ways is really helpful and productive here. So right now I'm teaching a early a medieval Rus, early modern uh, course. And we started on the first day asking, Do the, does medieval Rus belong in a class on Russian history? And so it's it's just, it gives us an ability to put that question, which students used to be kind of indifferent to, uh, front and center. And now the, the salience of it is so clear that the stakes of historical narrative become evident. Thank you. Actually, staying with that kind of interplay between deep past and present, two essays dealing with very different chronologies in the book deal with Stanislav, the last pagan ruler of Rus. One comes early in the volume and written by one of the editors, Sergei Kozlov, and the other um, comes at the near the end of the volume in the last section, um, most contemporary history by Yulia Mikhailova, trained as a medievalist herself. Um, please tell us about these two essays and, and Sviatoslav, and what is he doing at both ends of this volume? What do these articles reveal about the themes? Okay, well, that's a, a tough one. And um, I think... I think Sviatoslav himself is a figure who attracts myth mythologizing. Uh, he's mythologized already in the tale of bygone years, the medieval chron chronicle, where he becomes the sort of uh, epitome of manly warrior uh, intrepidness and uh it is interesting because he's the last pagan ruler uh, commemorated by Christian chroniclers, and yet he's he's definitely a glamorous figure. Sergei's essay shows that he's also he also attracts mythmaking from all of his neighbors, including his foes. Uh, he he uh, he shows up in all those empires that the Rus were among in visual depictions, in chronicle depictions. Um, and then those in turn spawn the, the myth-making that you're referring to that, that Yulia Mikhailova talks about, where he becomes um, 
a kind of split of a, a, a figure of that's embraced by Cossack identity and contested then uh, in the politics, Ukrainian Russian politics today. So I guess it's another another way of seeing the power of historical narrative and the way certain certain narratives lend themselves to political and uh, identity-based claims. Um, so can I jump in here then and say that these two articles um, at either end of the book also uh, are good examples of the two major concepts that we think come out of the this book and sort of ended up um, being our organizing principle when we were writing our introduction, for example. Um, first of all, the pictosphere, which is um, uh, a concept that we ad adapted from Simon Franklin's brilliant work on the graphosphere um, as, a, as a concept that um, shows the ways that the visual uh, creates networks of meaning um, through all of its material and suggested and fictional and other attributes. Val's better at talking about this than I am. And the other one is amidness, which um, we recognize is not a very elegant term. We spent many hours trying to come up with a better word for amidness, but it really captures the ways in which um, it seemed to us that the producers of visual images were aware of much more than a of of much more than kind of binary imperial um, relationships or binary east west relationships, um, but really seemed to be aware of the the multiple uh, of being amid multiple different cultures, um, of being part of often our producers are themselves um, ethnically hybrid. Uh, or as more than hybrid, but ethnically um, themselves um, descendants of multiple ethnicities. Uh, and, and we just found this very rich awareness of something of something that helped us break down some of the binaries in, in Russian history, in Russian historiography or in the historiography of empire. Thank you so much. Yes, you actually, I was going to very much ask you about that, that question of this idea of amidness. And, and, I, and I would say I appreciate it very much because as someone, I mean, as we all know that from the 19th century and some would even trace it earlier, this question of uh, much earlier, you know, Peter talked about it, Catherine II talked about it, is Russia of the East or of the West. That, that's one of those major binaries we just can't escape. And then to have, and then Eurasianism can in many, often be quite unsatisfying as well. And so I appreciate that this notion, however inelegant you might find it as, you know, a bigness um, it's at so many different levels, um, it, hierarchies, genealogies, geographies. So thank you for this idea of a bigness. And also, no, I'd just like to call out um, Monica White's essay, the very first essay in the book, which I just want to say I think does an amazing, amazing job, together with Irina Konovalova's essay, the second essay in the book, of introducing so many of the concepts that are going to be important throughout the book. 
and also of introducing medieval Rus in a way that is um, uh, uh, all the complex issues are um, sort of made lucid. Uh, her article is about coinage made by um, Vladimir or Vladimir, known in dif- by different names in our different cultures, um, which the imagery of which were drawn from the empires surrounding Rus, which itself was um, barely a state and definitely not an empire at that time. Uh, and he seemed to be drawing, and Monica argues that he seemed to be drawing on this imagery um, in order to establish the legitimacy and importance and connectedness of um, Rus with the world around it. Uh, and I just that's just a great example of the, what we're talking about. I agree. It is a lovely ex- essay. And um, and actually, I, if I can, for this idea of the pictosphere drawing from Simon, Simon Franklin's book, The Graphosphere, listeners interested in hearing a bit more about the graphosphere can listen to a history exilo conversation I had with Simon Franklin about that that book. So um, thanks for bringing that up. Um, but uh, okay, back to picturing Russian em- empire. And there's 56 articles in the book, as I said, it's so rich, there's so much, and we won't be able to get to um, all of it. But I want to, I mean, I want to ask questions that give you the opportunity to talk about various ones, even though we can't get to all of them, unfortunately. But I want to start by asking a question about Orientalism. I'm so struck by the representations of Central Asia in the volume. Um, And I wanted to ask you about how this body of evidence reinforces or alters our ideas about Orientalism in the Russian Empire. Um, Russia occupied this particular space on the civilizational spectrum, and many may are already aware probably of how Dostoevsky in the 1870s famously declared in Europe, we were hangers-on and slaves, but in Asia we are masters. And you write in the introduction that these essays, quote, offer a way to break through the encrusted binaries of the ongoing debate over Russian Orientalism. And so could you explain what you mean by that and say more about that, please? Joan. <laughs> sure. Um, uh, uh, let, me, let, me talk about, let me talk about Orientalism because you, you quoted the, the main argument that we make in the book and that I think the essays bring out, that, um, that the essays themselves help us understand Orientalism in Russian history by... Um, by breaking down those binaries um, and by breaking down some of the concepts that were central to Edward Said's original concept of Orientalism as um, a a construction of Western scholars looking at at the Middle East and seeing it as timeless and exotic and um, sort of making up what it was. Um, Maria Taryutina's article is a great example of the way amidness help is is at the heart of breaking down these binaries, um, and she she her article is about illustrations of Lermontov's demon, which is set in the Caucasus, made the illustrations made by artists at the artist colony outside of Moscow in Abramsova, including the work of Mikhail uh, Vrubel, who um, is sort of the the center of this essay. Um, and she shows that uh, that if we look at all of these images 
as a um, as a group, there there are no stable stereotypes of the caucuses, and that there all the stereotypes are continually being contested and reinvented, and um, uh, they're still stereotypes. The empire is still in play, but they're not stable. They're not um, they're not widely shared, so they're constantly being broken down and reinvented. And then Vrubel comes along and tries to make images that are not stereotypical, but rather realistic, which is kind of weird for Vrubel, but um, but that's what he was doing. He tried to represent the demon and all the characters as realistic people from Georgia. And he got attacked for this because, um, by critics and, and uh, fellow artists who saw these as um, not fitting into their own idea of what the stereotypes should be. So in other words, there's no sort of, in the, in, this is an example of how in the Russian Empire, um, Orientalism breaks, breaks down and shows us the different, the variety of ways in which um, people from the center uh, or from any of the Russian centers are looking at the people of empire in a variety of ways. Uh, and then um, Helena Holtzberger's article on photography of Central Asia in this in the Soviet in the 1930s is another example of how Orientalism works in different ways. Um, she she shows though, so Central Asia became a major uh, subject for photographers in the 1930s. All the great photographers basically had to go to Central Asia to do a, a photo series. And um, they had strict instructions from the center that they were to show uh, various ways in which Central Asia was modernizing or becoming Soviet. As And those two concepts overlap uneasily as well. Um, and she shows that while they did um, use some sort of stereotypical images of Central Asia, photos of camels, photos of people on horseback, um, photos of sort of traditional occupations like spinning and weaving, um, they always seem to question basic concepts of that we associate with Orientalism. So the, so the, the sort of um, propaganda instruction of modernization challenges the whole notion of timelessness of the place, right? Um, and then by using avant-garde um, visual techniques of um, canted angles and uh, um, and lighting, and so and you know off-center lighting and so on, that um, she she shows. So for example, she has a, a photograph of a, a camel caravan, um, but it's shown from a very low um, angle. Cameras at a very low angle. It kind of questions the both the timelessness of the caravan as well as the sort of modernistic um, modernizing uh, narrative as well as really anything. It just makes you, as as uh, modernists wanted to do, it makes you look at these things anew. So, um, and then the photographers, many of the photographers themselves were of hybrid identities, uh, Russian and Jewish, um, Russian and Central Asian, Jewish and Central Asian. Uh, and so it's hard to say what the point of view, uh, what the sort of ethnic or Russian point of view on these topics 
was. And I think those are those are two essays that make us rethink Russian Orientalism and um, sort of the way in which we think of it is like a, a horizontal line between Europe, Russia in the middle, and the East on the other end, uh, and complicate all of those all of those issues. Thank you. Um, flipping through the volume, and there, you feature so many different types of images. You know, not not just paintings, but newspapers and postcards and coins and high. Like elite production and, and non-elite production. Uh, and there's just so much visual material in the pictosphere. I mean, that the volume brings that impression up in such a tangible way that I, I think it's worth pausing on. But even as I, as I flip through this, um, all of this visual material in the pictosphere that sends messages about empire and whether, you know, all of these contributors are just such amazing analysts with this point of view that you really do come away. These images are about empire, um, both real and aspirational, intended, unintended, that it left me wondering, you know, was was there a centralized, institutionalized approach to visually representing the empire? And if not, then how do you account for it, if, if not this saturation, this widespread, sustained um, presence of material that intentionally or not, in some in some measure, comments on reflects an imperial dynamic presence, etc. Now, yeah, I I really we, we we both really appreciate this question um, because I think it's a way to get at the heart of of what the volume does, which is to show how how pervasive the empire was and how much room there was for uh, local expression, individual expression. So, of course, there are um, imbalances in survival of sources, especially early on, that state-generated sources, state-preserved sources are going to last longer through history. Uh, and their imbalances of what's allowable. So, uh, if things are censored, they're harder to to get to. So, the state, the imperial institution, is going to weigh in seen and unseen ways on the material that our authors have to to deal with. And another another sort of distortion is built in by our call for papers, which asks people to interrogate the intersection between images and empire. But that said, uh, it reflects something real about imperial experience. Uh, huge proportions of the population were involved in state service in one way or another, whether as state-employed coachmen and postmen or or um, state serfs or whatever they were, the state really did have tentacles everywhere. So it's another hybrid identity is an artist producing work as an employee of a um, Academy of Sciences ethnographic expedition or 
as an ethnographer artist who's interested in documenting the people of the Volga, both. Uh, and the pictosphere, again, we think is a really useful concept because it allows us to think of this entire imperial space as one that is producing images with local pooling and individual motivations and uh, hybrid perspectives that show us how empires actually work and actually are experienced. Yeah. Can I give some examples? Um, so uh, I was thinking, Val, when you were talking about how so many people worked for the empire or worked in in ways that were connected to the empire. Anna Graber's article um, about uh, the mining region and portraits of a, of a miners, of a mine owner's children, these were made to appeal to the government to promote the the, the child, the son, um, uh, to 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 pre basically a portrait of him was was made to pre to present to the state to get him uh, a promotion in in rank, um, and then in a more modern period, yeah, I mean there there are some essays that are just pure state. Uh, propaganda. So Yanaskar Bogatov's article about um, a documentary made about Sakhalin is, a, is basically a, just a, a, a lesson in imperialism in the sense that uh, Sakhalin is presented as open and welcoming for Russian settlers, both in presenting familiarity, scenes of fam that would be familiar to Russians and make it look welcoming from that point of view, and then presenting uh, the indigenous people as so thrilled with the with the presence of Russian technology that it presented them as welcoming Russian settlers with open arms. Um, but the, and then we have um, an example that I think complicates that in the in this in uh, um, Molly Arbuthnot's article about state propaganda in the 1920s. Um, posters that were presented to a Muslim population. And of course, Soviet posters, Russian posters, Russian language posters for the Russian population are famous for their avant-garde styles and artists who made them. And, you know, they're presented all over the world as being a great Soviet example. But when they, when they made posters for um, their Muslim and Arabic-speaking and Turkic-speaking populations, they used images from those cultures, from Central Asian cultures, um, as the the sort of subject of the propaganda and as the basis of um, their style. Uh, so these were ways that the state sort of opened up. The, I mean, you could look at it two ways, right? It's the ways that the state exploited um, or state artists exploited local cultures for their purposes. But it's also an opening to creating more diverse and mixed um, uh, visual images by local artists, right? So it said these images and these styles and these traditions are legitimate forms of representation. Thank you so much. And it, yeah, that um, the Skarabagatev article that has... Um, all these stills from films and you know i'm not a film studies specialist so i really appreciated the articles and 
the ones through the Pamirs as well that kind of break down what's going on in in when we pause and look closely at these images that would otherwise just wash through us. So those are some, I really enjoyed those contributions as well. I'd like to go back to um, some th- some questions that you raised both in the introduction and, and I've heard you here, Joan, earlier um, pointed to some of these driving questions. So wh- one that I want to ask you, do images have, um, or to what extent do images work as active agents? affecting change and determining viewer response or Jonah, but maybe Val, you'll take that first or. So that's a great question. And it is a driving question of the volume. Uh, At some level, I think it's, it's obvious that images work. Uh, At least regimes certainly think so because they put a lot of work into, um, into presenting their propaganda in visual terms. Advertisers think it works. And uh, so there, there's a lot of, of uh, well, there are a lot of studies that show that, that barraging people with imagery works. So we, at, at one level, the answer is obvious. At, the, at another level, uh, how, how do these, especially minor, genres work in the world, it's very hard to get viewer response in most of these situations. Uh, But something like the Sviatoslav pairing that you gave us suggests that images have afterlives. Uh, And that in itself, I think, testifies to the power of those images to 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 um, persist and be deployed and adapted as time goes on to different causes, different uses. Um, I guess I'm, I'm thinking now about um, maybe Bart Pushaw's essay in the book, which talks about uh, photographs of Estonian types, which were deployed in the late ni- in the nineteenth century, both as part of an imperial ethnographic uh, impulse to collect and document the peoples of empire, but also to to create and broadcast an image of an Estonian nation from an Estonian uh, point of view. Or or maybe my essay, um, which is on the racialization of Tatars in Muscovite imagery over the course of the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, in the 16th century, Tatars appear exactly the same as Russians in in illustrations. In the 17th century, they start to acquire demonic traits, not exactly human racial traits, but those of demons, which both reflect and harden views of Tatars as other or lesser or scary uh, 
in the Russian imagination. So I think uh, those are both good examples of images that do work in the world. Super. Um, thanks. And in some ways, maybe it's it's related. And and uh, but this is a question you ask in the introduction, so I so I'm going to ask it here as well. And that's about agent what agency images have in producing or resisting empire. What um, what does this volume have to say about that? You've kind of covered on the producing part, I think you've talked about that a bit, and less so so far on the resisting empire um, end of things. So what's a, um, what role do images have in resisting empire? I, I think one form of resistance... I mean, it's a, it's a, it might be considered a sort of form of passive resistance, but one form of resistance is the maintenance of local culture against this sort of juggernaut coming from the center. So we have Alessa, Alessia uh, Vovina's article about embroidery, uh, Truvash embroidery, um, this community on the Volga, and we see the ways that they continually... Um, uh, uh, reproduce traditional forms of embroidery, even even as it, it they become um, uh, implicated in government projects. Um, there's just a a real sense that that of uh, maintaining their own culture within a larger, sometimes you know, attempt to sort of. Um, uh, exploit local culture for state propaganda ends. Thank you. Val? Yeah, uh, I just wanted to add to that. Um, another good example of that is Angelina Lucento's article on the Tatar avant-garde. Overtly anti-imperial are some of the modern pieces, Jones, of course, but also uh, Josh First, with, that talks about Ukrainian film that just ignores Russia and the empire, just removes it. Um, and Karen Patron's about the dismantling of, of Soviet war monuments. So I think that part is, is built in as well. Yeah, there's a, there's a good deal of material to give us um, some perspective on that as well. I, um, I know your time is short today. I want to wrap up. So my final question to you about the volume is about chronology. Are there generalizations you'd make about imagery across the imperial-Soviet divide? It seems like we, um, you know, Russian East Europeanists are always, always aware of that binary divide. Maybe. Sure. Uh, I I would say that um, the the sort of concepts that we ended up that we found sort of arose from the articles of the pictosphere and amidness is probably the closest we would come to thinking about uh, or identifying um, a generalization about the role of images in the Russian Empire. Um, we, we really, we're, the, so pictosphere being a dynamic and constantly um, inter, interpo, constant interpolation and dialogue and um, sort of, uh, um, you know, dissemination of images in in networks across the empires. One of the one of the things that we see throughout this period 
And then amidness, you know, the sense, I, I just really want to push back against all the binaries that exist and say that even in terms of the, I think um, we wrote in the introduction that a common uh, metaphor for the, for empires is kind of wheel with center and spokes that even that we want to push back against in the sense that that creates a binary between center and periphery and just show a kind I mean, what really impressed me was the ways in which um, production outside, inside, but especially outside of Moscow, really, and St. Petersburg outside the Russian capitals, really seem to be working in a, in a much more complex and um, you know, complex in every, I mean, I wish I had a better word than complex, but in, in a way that was uh, multidimensional and multidirectional and aware that empire is not just a relationship between um, peoples and the center, but among peoples of, of uh, among peoples and cultures throughout the empire, if that makes sense. Like, like I'd like people to have a picture of, of an image of the Russian empire as something that Almost, almost as Josh Versch talks about in those in those Maidan um, films, that maybe ignores Russia to a certain extent, or ignores you know Central Russia, ethnic Russia, um, and 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 understands that there was communication and awareness of this incredibly uh, incredibly diverse space. Thank you so much, Val. As a final word, is there anything to that you'd like to add? I guess I, I would just second what Joan said. I think that chrono chronological question wasn't one of the driving questions. It really was to complicate the idea of empire. And here, just to pull out an example again, um, Willard Sunderland's article on Father Hyacinth, who's the Russian uh, sinologist, uh, who actually isn't Russian at all. He was Chuvash, I believe, uh, Con uh, complicating the, the binaries once again. Thank you so much. I want to say um, a thank you to our listeners for listening. On behalf of many in the field, thank you for doing this work. I know even for me, you really um, pushed me to see images and think more deeply about them. And, and I'm grateful for that opportunity. And I'm so grateful to both of you for joining us in this conversation today. So thank you very, very much. And, and goodbye. Thanks.